Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of bringing as a special guest, Mark Gober today for his book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, dispelling the myth that the brain produces consciousness and the implications for everyday life. Consciousness creates all material reality. Biological processes do not create consciousness. This conceptual breakthrough turns traditional scientific thinking upside down. In an end to upside down thinking, Gober traces his journey. He explores compelling scientific evidence from a diverse set of disciplines, ranging from the psychic phenomena to near-death experiences to quantum physics. With cutting-edge thinkers like two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee Dr. Irvin Laszlo, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dr. Dean Radden, and New York Times bestselling author Larry Dossey supporting this thesis, this book will rock the scientific community and mainstream generalists interested in understanding the true nature of reality. Today's disarray around the globe can be linked at its core to a fundamental misunderstanding of our reality. This book aims to shift our collective outlook, reshaping our view of human potential and how we treat one another. The book's implications encourage much needed revisions in science, technology, and medicine. General readers will find comfort in the implied worldview which will impact their happiness and everyday decisions related to business, health, and politics. Stephen Hawkins' A Brief History of Time meets Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. It's with great pleasure that I introduce Mark Gober to the show. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's very pleasant to have you on to discuss your new book and end upside down thinking. My first question to you is, what motivated you to create this book? Well, it kind of came up unexpectedly. I work in finance. Um, I'm, I'm a partner at a firm called Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley, and I've been in that role in the job with the firm for um, eight and a half years now. And prior to that, I worked in investment banking with UBS in New York. Prior to that, I, I was a student at Princeton University where I was captain of the tennis team. So really, up until about two years ago, I didn't have a book on my radar or the topic of consciousness. And here I am now with a book on consciousness that's out. It all started about two years ago when I heard podcasts that exposed me to some of the ideas that I discuss in the book. And I became interested at first, not really thinking much of it, but just I was listening to podcasts and looking for new things to listen to. And over time, as I heard more and more people talk about phenomena like psychic abilities and working with energies and communicating with the deceased, these were things that I had never heard of in any serious way at all. 
Um, so I began researching and then was surprised to see that there was so much science that backed these ideas, and they all related back to the question of, of consciousness and, and whether our brain produces it. And if our brain doesn't produce it, could we potentially kind of pick up consciousness beyond our, our localized body? That led me to research for about a year, just nonstop research really outside the office because I wanted to understand what this all meant and how it related to my life and what it meant to, to let be a human being really. After a year of researching and at, at times telling friends about the research I was doing and getting a lot of positive feedback on the implications that people took away, I said, well, why don't I try to put things on paper because I've done so much research, let me just get it all down. And I, I took 4th of July weekend in 2017, which was a four-day weekend that year, and just did nothing but write. And I ended up writing more than half of the book and had the structure for the remaining parts that I finished the next few weekends. So this kind of came up suddenly, and it's, it's become a real passion of mine. That's excellent. I actually am an intuitive psychic medium myself. So I've had direct experiences with the stuff that you're introducing at the beginning of our talk. And I want to ask you, when it comes to consciousness itself, what have you found consciousness to mean to you? I would say it's, it's our subjective inner experience. So when I say I'm speaking okay. to you right now, that sense of I, it's not a physical thing, but it's just it's always there. It's my awareness. And I, I think there's a challenge in trying to define consciousness with language because consciousness now in my mind is, is not something with limits. It's not even a thing. It's just it kind of is. And what, the minute that we use language to limit it, um, it's kind of distorting the essence of what consciousness actually is. But we have to speak to one another. So I think, I think uh, using things like awareness or subjective inner experience are good proxies to define consciousness. That's excellent. And um, one of the things I would, I would ask you to di differentiate, if you can, is what made you come up with your title and end to upside-down thinking? So the upside-down thinking that I'm referring to in the book <clears throat> is the notion that it's, it's the prevailing view in most of science and modern society today. It's a, it's a perspective that I now realize that I bought into until I got into this research, which is known as materialism. That's the word in science and philosophy that I'm talking about. And what materialism means is 13.8 billion years ago, there was a big bang or some event that started the universe. It filled the universe with physical material that we call matter. So when I touch my table, that's made out of atoms of matter. So we have this big universe with matter all over the place. And you're bound to end up with reactions between those pieces of matter. We call those reactions chemistry. And when you have enough random chemical reactions in this very large universe, you're bound through chance to end up with a type of molecule that can replicate itself like DNA. Like chance just says we'll end up with DNA with that much matter in this big universe and so many chemical reactions. So DNA obviously leads to the evolution of living beings like a human being, and a human develops a brain, and from the brain comes out consciousness. So we started with matter, and we ended up with consciousness through a brain. That's the, what I'm regarding as upside-down thinking, to say that matter creates consciousness, consciousness or that the brain produces consciousness. On the other side of this, there's an alternative perspective, which is emerging in many different areas of science, and it's one that I'm now endorsing too, which is to say that consciousness does not come at the end of the picture, but instead consciousness comes first, that consciousness is primary or fundamental to the entire physical universe. And that is what I mean by an end to upside down thinking. I'm arguing, no, it's not matter that's cre that creates consciousness, rather consciousness is primary to matter. I can agree with that from my vantage point as a, I do mediumship. I'm also an attorney by day, but 
I find that we live beyond our physical limitations and that that's just my personal belief that life exists beyond where we are now. And I've always explained it to people. I, I call it energy that our energy of who we are, our spirit, our consciousness transcends death. And we go to another point of existence and that the consciousness is really what is the summation of who we are. Do you have, what's your viewpoint on something like that in terms of our consciousness and how it is of who we are aware of ourselves, self-awareness, and awareness of one another, and that actually existing beyond the physical plane. Well, it's actually one of the, the sections of my book is on, uh, there are two sections that talk about uh, types of evidence to suggest that this idea of, of consciousness being primary is, is true. One is, is psychic abilities like telepathy and a few others, and another is survival of bodily death. In other words, when the body ceases to function, the consciousness does not die uh, because First of all, the consciousness isn't dependent on matter in the first place. So just conceptually, it wouldn't die when the body dies. But then in the book, I talk about a number of pieces of evidence for that. So I, I agree with you that, that the body is almost like a, a vehicle or a temporary lens for consciousness to have a very specific type of experience. So the experience that I'm having is through the biology of, of the body mark. But the consciousness that I am is sort of untouched by the biology. Okay. I do like the way that you introduce these various concepts in terms of looking at it and just, and, and I'm trying to add lib a little, but my understanding is the premise of what you're bringing into this is that we think of life in terms of matter, which you call materialism. And they, mm-hmm. it's actually, and I can see what you're going with this now. It's not really all about the matter. It's about the actual consciousness itself. The, the, which I, you can't even describe it with words, really. It's just that plane of, of, our, our, of our collective knowledge or, or you know, what some people might refer to as the spiritual side of ourselves. It's an all-encompassing aspect of it that predates matter. Would that be an accurate representation or summary? I, I would say, yeah, generally, uh, when we start getting into things like predates, that gets into questions about whether time is linear or not, if time goes from past to present and future to future. And it's one of the things that I, I talk about in the book that does not seem to be the case, that we, we interpret time as being linear, but actually consciousness is beyond all space and time. So that, was, that, that would be the only thing that I might, uh, I might not fully agree with, that the word predate implies linear time. I know in your book that in your, in your pre- preface you have a pyramid looks like the food pyramid back in the day when they showed the food groups. And on your yeah. pyramid, you show physical matter as the foundation. Then you show chemistry. Then you show biological organisms, brain, and consciousness. Can you describe the difference between the brain and consciousness on your pyramid? Yeah, that's an important one. And this is what you just described is the materialist perspective. And that's the way I illustrated in the book. And it's, that's actually an adaptation from Dr. Dean Radin, who has a similar perspective here. So the brain is a physical organ. Like you can point to it in your head. There's a structure called the brain. That's what I mean by the brain. Consciousness, on the other hand, is that awareness that you and I both have speaking to one another. All of your listeners have that awareness, the subjective experience of being alive, this identity that's not a physical thing. So your brain is physical. Your consciousness is the sense of experiencing. Now the question is, does that sense of experiencing come from chemical and electrical activity that's going on in your brain? Much of science is assuming that that is the case, but it's something that in my book I'm challenging, and even Science Magazine, a very mainstream outlet in the area of science, they've called this the number two question that remains in all of science. 
How is it that this thing that you can point to in your head that's physical, how does it produce your, your consciousness or your mind that's not physical? And that's, that's the big question. Where do we put consciousness on that pyramid? Does it come out of the brain or does it come somewhere else? That's very interesting. It, it's a very interesting analysis as to the essence of who we are in a way. Of why are, it goes back to, in my, when I'm hearing you describe it and look at your book, so why are we here, who are we, and what is our purpose can also kind of fall into the argument that you're made, not the, I shouldn't say the argument, the position that you're actually describing, which I find fascinating as an idea to explore, is where are we in terms of understanding or gaining understanding of this type of a concept? I think it's going to take a while for science to catch up with the idea that consciousness has a increased important role than what has been previously understood. What steps do you think society needs to take to change the paradigm in terms of its thinking around this area? It's a really important question. Uh, first of all, I agree with you that, that it's challenging because we're also, I think, used to assuming at just in general in society that the reason we are conscious is because of things that are happening in our brain. And I think the subtle shift in thinking is as follows, is to not just throw out the brain, the brain is certainly related to consciousness. Like if someone gets in a car accident and has, has head damage, they might have a memory impairments or other cognitive issues. We can see changes in the brain that relate directly to changes in consciousness states. Uh, you stimulate a part of the brain. That person might have a corresponding change in their conscious state. So there's a, a strong relationship between the brain. The key is to shift its, uh, the way we think about it. Do we view the brain as being the producer of consciousness in those states? Or is the brain more like a receiver, like an antenna, or like a filtering mechanism? So every time you shift the brain, because it's the receiver, so to speak, it's going to shift how we experience things. But it's, the consciousness itself is not from the brain. So it's about, I think, that shift in, in recontextualizing how we view the brain. It's not throwing the brain out altogether, but it's viewing that which we are, the essence of us, as not being just confined to this body. Now, how do we shift collective thinking around that when we've been so entrenched in a paradigm for a long time? I don't know the answer. Part of the reason I wrote the book is that I think reality is much more in line with what you and I are speaking about today, that consciousness is beyond the brain and probably more fundamental than matter. So I, what I'm trying to do in the book is to make the information accessible, hopefully, to a general population. But I still think that not everyone is going to want to intellectualize something like that because it just takes a lot of time and, and just thinking to, to shift one's thoughts. It seems like people who have direct experiences, that's the quickest way for people to shift their thinking. And sometimes it happens through trauma, like a near-death experience, where a person is, is in physical harm and then their brain is off or it's highly impaired and yet they have lucid memories that are occurring during that time and they kind of get an understanding of the essence of who they are. And those people are typically forever changed. Now, I don't think it's realistic for everyone to just have a near-death experience, nor is it safe. Um, so that's, but it's one way that I think people can directly shift. Another that can happen sometimes is, uh, is with psychedelics and depending on the substance people take and whether it's done in the right setting, it seems like sometimes people will have that kind of a shift from the changes in brain states that result from psychedelics, also from types of meditation. But I guess where I'm going is that I think the more people have an experience of this consciousness beyond themselves, which I have not personally had, but I've read so much about it and talked to people about it, it seems like that can transform people in an instant. That's a fascinating. Um, it, it's definitely fascinating to think of how 
to intellectualize this is a good way of phrasing it. I like the fact that you're taking these areas that a lot of people just, some people classify it as paranormal sometimes or they'll look at it from an outside perspective and, and they try to put a label on it. I like the fact that you're trying to get to the roots of it and understand it better through your own uh, analysis of it. I think it's phenomenal. I wanted to ask you, you. about yeah. re- remote viewing because I know your chapters go to go into some very interesting topics that I find very intriguing myself. What did you, what do you find about when you got involved in writing about remote viewing? What exactly did you, did you learn about it that was different than you expected before you got into this work? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess before I got into this work, I didn't even know what remote viewing was. <laughs> so I'll, I'll define that for your yeah. listeners who haven't heard of it like me two years ago. But remote viewing is the <laughs> ability to, to uh, perceive something without seeing it with your eyes. So an example, I'm sitting here in California and theoretically I could see something that I've never seen before with my eyes that's in a random place on another continent and I can draw it out. So it's like accessing something that is non-local to yourself and being able to actually perceive it. It sounds totally crazy, but if consciousness is sort of everything, then it's at least conceivable that somebody or some people could access this broader thing that we are typically filtering out with our brain because our brain is like a filter. And what, what I found is that there are many examples of people that have extraordinary abilities in these areas. Uh, but one thing I want to say before I explain some of the evidence, the reason that I explore issues like remote viewing and survival of bodily death and other psychic abilities, the whole point of, of my doing that in the book is to say that, look, there is lots of evidence in these independent areas. And my reasoning is that if any, of these, if any one of these things is real – then we cannot explain it well with the conventional materialistic view that the brain or matter creates consciousness. However, if consciousness is primary and exists beyond space and time, then all of these things stop being paranormal. And I'm glad you used that word because I think it's really an unfair term. The word paranormal implies that we know what normal is, and yet in science there's, there are huge mysteries like 96% of the universe is known as dark matter and dark energy. In other words, the majority of the universe is we know something is there because it's ha- exerting an effect, but we have no idea what it is. And yet we're using words like paranormal to kind of, I think, unfairly categorize things that just don't, don't conform to our common sense. Um, but that's, that's a side topic. Anyway, that's where remote viewing comes in as one of these phenomena that I explore. And the evidence for remote viewing to me is a really strong there's a strong body from a number of different areas, and that's why it's the first evidence-based chapter that I have. I had no idea before I got into the research that the U.S. government ran a program for more than 20 years where they had yes. remote viewers that were acting as psychic spies effectively. And they were um, – they, they it's, 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 it actually makes sense when you think about it that it would kind of be a, a secretive thing, but – What's the evidence that this actually happened? Well, if you, t- if you read books from the, the laser physicists at Stanford University that, that ran these tests, I mean, they all say that this was real. The remote viewers themselves say it was real. I was able to go to the CIA's website and download some documents that were previously declassified. And they say very explicitly, and I include these documents in my book, they say remote viewing is a real phenomenon. That's a direct quote, and they say the, the implications are revolutionary, so that you have lots of evidence like that. Um, you have former President Jimmy Carter, 
confirmed that remote viewers were used to find a downed Russian bomber that was lost in an African jungle. He confirmed that publicly. So there are a number of very credible cases like that. When you put it all together, I have a hard time, just as a rational person, saying that each of these examples is fabricated. Interesting you raise that as examples. One of my earlier episodes for my podcast, I had an organization called Find Me uh, out of Arizona. And one of the things they do, they had a retired DA agent of many years, very logical thinking individual, created create this organization to help find missing people that are alive. And one of the things that they rely upon as part of their methodology are remote viewers, people who have the gift that they can look at things from their non-physical senses. And they've been able to locate missing bodies in the middle of the desert on several occasions or in the bottom of a lake bed due to remote viewing as part of the process. So it's interesting that you bring up Jimmy Carter with a downed Russian plane. When um, I had a uh, one of my former guests from Find Me On, and I can tell you that that's something that really intrigues me a lot, to think that we, we have perhaps these heightened abilities in, in, within each of us, but not a lot of us can tap into that yet and understand it. Yeah. One of the other things I want to yep. uh, do you have an opinion as to that? I totally I agree with you 100%, and I've heard of cases like this where people are uh, detectives and other people are using remote viewing sometimes as a last resort. But I agree with you that I think we need to start tapping into these things more because it seems like these are innate abilities that we all have. Some people are, be- are stronger naturally than others, just like some people may- might be more athletic naturally than others. Uh, but all of us have the ability, and if we could learn how it works better, we might all be able to tap into it. In your book, I also noticed that you have some mention to near-death experiences reported by patients under general anesthesia. Ironically, a few weeks ago, I had something like that happen to me when I was under anesthesia for a, a medical procedure. Uh, I find timing, you know, you were coming on the show to do this episode to promote your book and the personal experiences that I have perhaps experienced, plus members of our audience, I can tell you, a lot of the people that listen to this episode are likely going to be thinking directly, either through people they know or from personal experiences themselves, about the things that you raise within your book, the examples. It, it, it's interesting to think that we are in 2018 and we still are just scratching the surface of this stuff and understanding it from a theoretical scientific approach. When you I, I agree with you. Your, I was going to say, when you started your project with this, did you expect that your opinions would change or your paradigm would shift as you went through the process of writing your book? I would say my paradigm shifted before I actually wrote it. And it was in that year of doing research, I had a a pretty major shift that happened. It wasn't like overnight, but it was just throughout the process of getting into all this research. I got to the point where I had seen so much research from different areas that I couldn't possibly reconcile all of that evidence with my old worldview, which was the materialist view. So my shift happened over the course of a year or so, probably in the earlier parts. When I wrote the book, it was just kind of a solidifying of the research that I had done. Interesting. Let me ask you about telepathy. What did you find in your particular review of this topic in terms of mind-to-mind communication without physically spoken words or sign language or anything like just being able to communicate on the higher level? What did you find about it? Well, like remote viewing, there are a number of examples that suggest that this is a real thing. And again, if we go back to our, our, the initial framework, which is that consciousness is the primary basis of everything, then this mind-to-mind communication idea is actually not paranormal. 
it's, there's an analogy that I really like from Dr. Bernardo Castrop, which says, imagine that all of reality is like a stream of water where each of us is a whirlpool within that stream and the water represents consciousness. If you think of my whirlpool maybe opening up a tiny bit and allowing in water, pool, water from another whirlpool, that would be like someone else's consciousness subtly entering my consciousness. That would be like telepathy. And that's something that is predicted by this consciousness's primary model. Now, what I like about some of the telepathy studies is that they are, the, the effects are sometimes more subtle and they apply to everyday people. Whereas the remote viewing studies at the U.S. government, these are referring to people that I'll call them like the Michael Jordans of psychic abilities. These are people that are outliers, really, really strong. And the everyday person might have a hard time relating to that because it's not happening all the time. Whereas with the telepathy studies, it's more of a statistical effect where it's, I think we can all relate to the idea where we think of somebody and then we get a text from them or we get a call and we hadn't thought about that person in a while. I think that happens to many people. So I'll, I'll give the classic study that has been replicated more than any other. And when you combine the results from all the studies over decades by different experimenters, you get a strong statistical effect. You have one person in the room, we'll call him Bob, and Bob is put into a very relaxed state. He's just totally relaxing in this room. And Jane is in another room. Jane is shown either a picture or a movie clip or some image by the experimenters. Bob doesn't know what Jane is looking at. Jane watches the, the, the image for a while, and she's asked to mentally send what she's looking at to Bob in the other room. So there's no contact between the two. They're not talking to each other. Bob hasn't seen what she's looking at. Bob at the end is then shown four pictures and the experimenters say, hey, Bob, one of these four pictures is what Jane was looking at. And Jane was mentally trying to send to you what she was, what she was viewing. And Bob is asked to pick which of the four Jane was sending with her mind. Now, if, there were, if it were just chance, if, if there were no effect at all, no telepathic effect of consciousness, then we would expect that Bob would guess correctly one out of four times or 25%. However, the studies show that it's closer to 32% when you combine the results. And using statistics, it's a massively significant effect, even though it's just 32 over 25%. It's a 7% plus or minus bump. Using statistics, that appears not to be a random thing. So it might explain some of these instances that I think many people have where they kind of know something is going to happen and then that person, then, you know, the, they get an outreach from that person. Maybe that's the, the subtle effect that we experience. It reminds me of, and I know you brought this up in your book, when you're in a room or you feel like you're being stared at from behind and everyone has had that experience, I feel like. Uh, how do you trace that to telepathy? I think it's a similar kind of effect. And the, the sense of being stared at is a type of study that's also been done by experimenters. Dr. Rupert Sheldrake is the one who's done, I think, more than any other person. But it's the same idea where you're, the, the person is sitting there and they know beyond chance when they're being stared at, sometimes through a television monitor, a CCTV. So that means the person's not even in the room. They're staring at them through a video monitor. And the person who's being stared at seems to know. It's, it's as if our consciousness is exerting some effect, like people might call it an energy, or I, it's hard to, to quantify exactly what it is, but something that one person is sending is being picked up by another, and that thing that they're sending is not physical and seems to be related to the intention that they're putting out. Definitely. It's interesting. Let's talk about precognition. 
knowing the future before it happens. A lot of opinions on this topic. I wanted to ask, when you started looking at this as one of the chapters for your book, what did you find in terms of the studies, the early precognition studies um, from like the 1930s by Joseph B. Ryan? What did you find starting out with that part of it in terms of under, getting a greater understanding of what precognition is and how it applies to consciousness? Yeah, so the early studies were basically where people had to <clears throat> guess cards beyond chance. And like the, the, the telepathy studies, there seemed to be a statistical effect where it's not like people were, were 100% accurate, but they're able to guess a card uh, beyond what chance would predict. And you have to run the math to actually see that that was an effect. And it's been controversial because people say, well, are they just playing with the statistics? Are people fabricating the results? What's been done in more recent years, and, and I think due to the criticisms that, that these experimenters have faced, the, the controls have actually gotten stronger because the experimenters know they're going to be criticized when they come out with results. And the more recent studies are looking at, at body physiology, meaning how is the body responding to something before that thing happens? And it's, it's kind of a mind-blowing topic. The, the conventional study in this area goes as follows. They reverse in time the traditional psychological experiment. The traditional experiment would say, I'm going to show a person a picture, and the picture is either going to be a calm one, like a picture of a river or a mountain, something that we know would not stimulate the person, or it's going to be an arousing picture, like a violent image or an erotic image, something that we know that if the person just looks at it, their body's going to have a subtle response. In other words, their skin might respond subtly, their brain will respond, their pupils might dilate, their heart might have a, a subtle response. We know that happens after the person sees the picture. That's not controversial. What the experimenters have done is reverse this in time. So the body is being measured before a computer randomly generates a type of picture. So the person doesn't know what picture is coming up. The experimenter doesn't even know because it's being randomly generated by a computer. And meanwhile, the person's body is being measured. And what the experimenters find, using statistics again, is that the body seems to subtly respond a few seconds before the picture is shown in a direction that is consistent with the picture that is eventually shown. So if it's an erotic image that comes up, a few seconds before, you'll see a spike in the skin, for example. Interesting. How can that be explained in our traditional channels of, of scientific knowledge? Is there, is there, did you find any resistance in your research uh, with the mainstream understanding of, of this topic, for example, and how you, I know you said that this has to be reworked, that you have to have a new way of approaching it, but how do you think, I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, what did you find in terms of your preparation for this book of how you encountered traditional scientific knowledge regarding precognitive experiences versus what I believe you're approaching in, your, in, in terms of your own understanding of it that it's something else that needs to be explained in a different construct. Did you, did you notice that when you tried to explore it from traditional approaches that it wasn't really making the mark fully, I guess I should ask you? Well, I think when we look at, at physics and quantum physics, which I have a whole chapter on, some, some of the effects there seem to at least make these ideas possible, where quantum physics is totally counterintuitive and the things that you and I are discussing today are just not intuitive. Like our common sense would not tell us these things are possible because our common sense only shows us a very small sliver of the actual reality we're in. 
whereas the quantum world, there's all kinds of bizarre stuff happening, and, and there are questions even about time, where it's still, there's still a big debate about it, but is it possible for the, the future to affect the past? It's an open question. So I think those who are familiar with physics, especially at the quantum level, might be slightly open to say, okay, that kind of sounds like an effect that's being studied in quantum physics. So that, I think, happens sometimes. But, but generally, the ideas that we're discussing, that anything that is in the realm of, of the paranormal, according to mainstream scientists, this is resisted heavily because it's, it, would, it would mark a, a major shift in paradigm. I mean, if we're thinking about the conventional paradigm is that matter creates consciousness through a brain, that the brain is the creator of consciousness. That means that we're a body, we're a body and a brain that produces a consciousness. Our identity is tied to our body. If consciousness is beyond our body, if consciousness is more fundamental than our body, that's a recontextualization of our own identity as a human being. That means that, wait, we're a consciousness that's experiencing a body? That's a totally big, that's a huge shift. And I think because of the, the implied shift here, the resistance ensues. And this is kind of natural, and we see it, we've seen it throughout history. Any paradigm shift has seen major resistance. I mean, that we used to think the Earth is flat, and that was, it, it was a major deal to realize, wait, the Earth has a round shape. And the same thing with Galileo, where he had evidence in his telescope which showed that the Earth was, was not the center of the solar system and that actually the Earth revolves around the sun, that was a huge shift, and there were clergymen that didn't want to look in the telescope to see that evidence. Um, so I think we have something similar right now where there's evidence that challenges a conventional paradigm, and some scientists are just not even open to looking at the evidence because, number one, maybe they just don't think it's possible, and number two, it would, it would imply that they need to shift their worldviews, and that can be difficult. Definitely, and I can see when you have so much invested in the body of evidence and literature over, let's say, centuries, for example, and then you try to introduce something that challenges that, you're going to have some blowback and resistance to that heavily. And I can understand yes. that. Looking at precognitive dreams, I know you discussed that in your book. I wanted to see if you could share with our audience what you found about precognitive dreams and how it fits within the notion of looking at consciousness as something far beyond the body. So this area hasn't been studied quite as rigorously as some of the, you know, the bodily response studies on, on precognition, but there are some very strong cases of people who have had dreams and then what they dreamt happened like the next day. And there have been a few controlled studies to try to look at this, but the results haven't been, they haven't been conclusive and they haven't been studied enough by enough researchers. <clears throat> so I'd say conceptually, a precognitive dream seems to make sense as being possible if we regard consciousness as being beyond space and time. It's almost like in the dream state or even in the normal state when the body seems to be responding to a stimulus that's going to be presented. It's like the consciousness is reaching forward to a highly probable future in some way that we don't fully understand. So I think I would, my answer would be that conceptually precognitive dreams or precognition in general, it, it makes sense under this framework of consciousness. I know when I try to explain to people I work with in terms of from the psychic approach myself, I always tell people that their dreams are tied to your subconscious and that when it, I guess I could say consciousness itself, the veil between our living physical awareness of who we are and that which transcends, I always say that veil is thinnest when we're asleep and we're dreaming. Uh, do you have any opinions about that yourself in terms of what you find from personal experiences with, with these kind of dreams and, and the 
people you may have spoken to and the research that you actually uncovered? Well, it seems like the people that are are doing things like remote viewing or even people that are, are channeling forms of consciousness that are not local to them, like they kind of go into a trance state and then they start speaking differently or they're, they're bringing forth information from somebody else. It seems like there's a, a commonality across how people who are talented in psychic abilities are, are behaving in that they, they typically go into a meditative or trance-like state. So it's like their brain waves, their brain state is shifting to allow them to pick up information in new ways. And that, to me, sounds similar to what happens in the dream state where our brain is in, in an altered state of consciousness effectively. Same with, with people on, on psychedelics or even children's brains, which my understanding is that, they, that a person who is on psychedelics actually has a brain that's more like a child's brain. So there's, there's something about these altered states, and a dream state might be one of them, where we are able to access things that are just not in our typical waking perception because the brain states, or it's like the antenna is shifting to a different station almost if we view the brain as being like an antenna, and then it's picking up different information. So it could be that in the dream state we're able to pick up information that we're not picking up in the waking state. Exactly how you just explained it is exactly what I tell people that okay. an intuitive experience is like tuning in to a certain channel on a radio or a TV where you pick up a signal and you're able to interpret that signal to relay information that doesn't derive from your traditional five senses. So it's interesting that you brought that up like that. I find that right on point, at least to my viewpoints of how I've experienced things over my life. I wanted to ask you, one of the examples you talk about with precognitive stuff is when individuals avert disasters like 9-11 or train accidents just by knowing the future. And I want to see if you could share that with our audience a little further regarding what you found regarding, uh, what I should say is concerning when people can avoid, for example, getting on a plane before it crashes and they just explain to you, I don't know, I just had that feeling. I can't explain it. Or averting some type of a disaster could have killed them, a life-saving circumstance deriving from perhaps having a level of precognition within themselves. Yeah, and then these are cases where it might be so subtle that people don't even know why they're not getting on the plane or not getting on the train, and they just end up not getting on it. And the examples that I give are the flight occupancy rates on 9-11 for the planes that crashed were much lower than usual. And there's another study by a researcher named William Cox who talked about occupancy rates on, on trains and that the occupancy rates were much lower on dates when there was a railway accident. Now, we can't prove that it's a causal relationship, that, that because the future was going to be some kind of disaster, that that influenced the past, and for some reason people didn't get on those forms of transportation. I mean, it's one interpretation to say is, wow, somehow people intuited that something was going to happen, and therefore they didn't get on for whatever reason, and they did, couldn't put their finger on why. I guess the, the reason that I included those examples is that we see that at least the body is subtly responding to things in the future without our conscious mind actually knowing it. And we have these examples of precognitive dreams, which in some cases are very strong. So could it apply on a much more macro level where people are, are making decisions subtly in ways that they don't understand, where they're just kind of avoiding situations that maybe it doesn't feel fully right or they have some inclination that is happening at a subconscious level where they end up doing something rather than another that could be disastrous. And, you know, I think for the people that have experienced that, I know that something's been documented 
I feel like it's something that will be examined further as time goes on, as we become more adept to it and understanding of it. I just think it's a fascinating area for sure. Yes, I agree with you. And that's another reason I felt so compelled to write this book is that we need to be exploring these areas. And I think currently in the mainstream scientific community, they're just not being explored in a very rigorous way. And they should be because this is groundbreaking stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to move a little bit into animals and what you found regarding psychic abilities with animals. Can you describe to our audience what you found in terms of how animals might have certain consciousness or certain psychic abilities as well? So if we think about the brain as being like an antenna of consciousness, then it would make sense that other beings with brains would potentially have abilities. So at least conceptually, it would make sense for animals to be able to do some of this stuff too. Um, and then the question is, is there any evidence for that? And I think many pet owners report that their animals seem to know things, and, and it's, it's just kind of a sense that many pet owners have. There has been some research on this topic, but not much, for reasons that I think your listeners might be able to guess, which is that, first of all, it's hard enough to get people to, to fund psychic studies on humans, let alone on animals. So there, Dr. Rupert Sheldrake has done some studies on this, but it's been really a here and there uh, phenomenon. I think the one that has, has had the most rigor behind it is a study that Dr. Rupert Sheldrake did on a particular dog and owner that seemed to have a telepathic relationship where the owner, when the owner was coming home from a randomly selected place at a randomly selected time, the dog beyond chance would be walking, would go over to the window when the owner was deciding to come home. And Dr. Sheldrake has an amazing video on his website that, that has a videotape of this, of this design, which he's, he's done about 200 trials with this dog and dog owner and has had peer-reviewed journal papers and actually had skeptics that uh, replicated the results, even though they, it's a kind of a controversy. They claimed that they didn't replicate the results, but when he looked at their analysis, um, the math actually worked out where they did replicate it. But the basic design goes like this. He has the owner go somewhere miles away, taken in a cab, so it's not even her normal car. She doesn't know when she's coming home. The only person that knows when she's coming home is the experimenter who sends a text or, or calls the person that the pet owner's with miles away and then says, okay, it's time for you to come home. So you've got a video camera on the woman who has left home, and then you have a video camera on the house to see where the dog is. Seconds after the woman decides that she's going to be walking to the cab because she's, to she's told she has to come home, you see the dog go over to the window as if the dog wow. was able to pick up on the woman's intention that she was going to be coming home. That's amazing. I know I've actually had pet owners who tell me that they feel like they're in tune with their animals when they're out of town and they feel like their animal's getting into mischievous behavior and they come home and, you know, their puppy or, or not, you know, whoever's being cared to make the mess and choose up the couch cushions. It's interesting to think that there could be a, a true connection there regarding consciousness. What do right. you find? I know, I, I noticed in, in part of the chapter, you talk about psychokinetic chickens and rabbits and psychokinesis mm -hmm. is the ability for the mind through intention to influence physical matter. What did you find about that topic in, in regards to chickens and rabbits? This is a really cool one. So I'll first explain what psychokinesis is. Like you said, it's the ability for the mind to have an effect on physical matter without touching anything. So it's like whatever our intention is doing, some energy that's coming out of our, our mind is, seems to have an effect on the physical world. 
And I'll actually start with the human studies because I think it's a good lead-in to the, the animal studies. The classic study that's been done with humans on psychokinesis was done at Princeton University for 27 years uh, by the former dean of engineering named Dr. Robert John. The lab was shut down, uh, I think, in 2007, but it's, it's crazy that the lab existed because I overlapped with the lab when I was at Princeton and didn't even know it, it was there because it was so controversial. And because Dr. John was such a, I mean, he was a rocket scientist and the dean of engineering, they, I guess, allowed him to have his little lab to look at this stuff, but it was not broadcast because it's so controversial. The classic study was uh, using a machine, a computer machine called a random number generator. So this is a machine that generates zeros and ones in a random fashion. And when you look at the string of zeros and ones over a long period of time, you end up with 50% ones, 50% zeros, because it's totally random. In the studies, Dr. John would ask people to mentally focus on the machine, the random number generator computer machine, and ask it, or basically with the mind, to try to will it to produce more ones and zeros. And the machines, correspondingly, seemed to produce more ones and zeros, but it was very, very slight, and it required statistics to look at the strings of zeros and ones to detect that something beyond chance was happening. But it seems to be happening over and over again, that when people focus on the machine, it behaves slightly differently. So that suggests that there is a mental effect of intention that is affecting a physical process without any physical contact. The people use their minds to affect the machine. Now, how does this relate to chickens and rabbits in some of the studies that have been done there? It seems that chickens and rabbits and maybe animals have this ability as well. And the way the studies are run is they have the experimenter has a robot that moves around based on a random number generator. So its movements when the random number generator is just running is totally random. And it's kind of like enclosed in a box. So the machine, this little robot is moving around in a random fashion. There's no predictability to it. And the, the way the results are shown is it's, uh, and I showed the picture in the book, is basically the square of where the robot is, is contained and you can trace its movement. And you see that the movement in the, in the square is totally random. Now in another trial, there is a cage set up near the place where the robot is sitting and you have a, a baby chicken set up and the baby chicken is put in the cage. In these cases, the baby chicken is separated from its mother so that it almost imprints on this machine as, as like the mother because that's what the baby chicken does. It imprints on something uh, for, as a mother figure and there was no mother so the robot almost acted as the mother figure. The question is, will the chicken, which now probably has an intention or some kind of emotional feeling towards the robot, could the chicken influence the robot's behavior because the robot's just moving based on a random number generator that's spitting out zeros and ones. Could the chicken's intention shift the flow of zeros and ones? What you see in these studies is that the robot ends up spending much more time closer to the chicken's cage. So its behavior in moving around this area is not random anymore, which suggests that the chicken's mental intention to will the machine closer to it is somehow affecting the machine's behavior. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, to amazing. have that actually is. A, I agree. Yeah, it is. Truly really is. Really is. And I think that that can lay the foundation of looking at this from such a different perspective than previously has been uh, approached by our community. I, I want to ask you about. I know we're talking about psychokinesis. 
I want to ask you about energy healing because that's an area that I find very intriguing for myself in terms of how individuals who have experience with energy healing are able to focus, potentially focus their mind or their mental intention to physically heal people. And I want to see if you could share that, your findings with our audience. Again, if we think about psychokinesis as the ability for the mind to have an effect on physical matter, then I think it would be it would logically follow that our body is physical. So could our could the mind affect health, or affect the health outcomes of a human being? I think at least conceptually, there's that makes sense. Um, there, there's been mixed results with regard to energy healing, but it seems like there are some cases of very credible people that have done this. And one is Dr. Joey Jones, who has had very critical roles on Jimmy Carter's scientific advisory board and also had a similar role with President Obama. So this is a, a credible guy, and he was at UC Irvine. He, he passed away. Uh, but he looked at how cells in Petri dishes that were exposed to radiation, how they behaved and survived when they were receiving energy healing from people that are experienced healers, that were sending whatever energy or mental intention towards these cells that were you know, being exposed to radiation. And the results were that when the healers provided their healing energy to the, the dishes, more of the cells survived the radiation, which wow. is amazing. That's amazing indeed. If you think about what that could do for medicine, they incorporate energy healing into its available modalities for treatment for people. I know out in California, historically, that's been one of the places where they actually have done some further in-depth experiences with energy healing at hospitals. And um, to hear that that could have an effect on the cells of the body, it, it's, it, it leaves a lot that could be uncovered just by exploring that further. It's, I what? totally agree with you. And in some cases, the healer was thousands of miles away. So it doesn't yeah, even it require proximity necessarily. And, and one of the things I did in my little path that I've been on spiritually is I, I took up pranic healing and Reiki healing. I don't consider myself an expert at all, but just learning about it and practicing with it as a, as a novice, I find it does, from my vantage point, I feel very strongly that it, it can be something that could definitely help an individual who practices it. And then also for those who want to receive the healing energy from an experienced practitioner, it should definitely be explored as an option for a holistic approach for somebody. Uh, yeah. I, I like that yep. you, you, you found these kind of studies because uh, it, it's setting a scientific basis and, you know, a research-oriented basis to things that are usually explained away by skeptics as, ah, it's energy. You can't really quantify energy. So how do you know if it's working? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and maybe like you, need, you need someone that's actually a talented healer. And in these studies, it sounds like they found people that were really good. Maybe not everyone's good because we don't fully understand it yet. Exactly. Let's talk about life after death, near-death experiences. That's a big area. I wish I had more time on my show to get into this with you because it, it's such an area that I, I know a lot of people have opinions on. What I want to ask you about is your viewpoint about near-death experiences and what you found from your research and how it impacts your, your concept of the consciousness itself. Yeah, this is, a, this is a really important one, and I have a whole chapter on near-death experiences. I think the conventional view on a near-death experience, and probably what I would have said before my research, is that when a person is close to dying, the brain releases chemicals that induces a hallucination. 
and the person will experience unconditional love and very blissful feelings because it's an evolutionary mechanism for the brain to make the person feel good before they're about to die. But what the person's experiencing is nothing more than a result of activity that's happening in the brain. And if that were the case, then what people are reporting on their near-death experience is not, it's not anything paranormal. It's just how the brain is functioning. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is actually not what's happening, though, that what people are experiencing is some kind of a lucid consciousness with a non-functional body, which, again, goes back to our, our idea that the consciousness itself is not tied to the body in the first place. And if anything, the body and the brain are limiting our perception of reality. And when the brain and the body are turned off in certain ways, it allows us to experience that broader reality that we're typically just filtered away from. What is the evidence that near-death experiences are not hallucinations? I think the strongest cases are from cardiac arrest studies. And Dr. Pim Van Lommel, a cardiologist from the Netherlands, uh, ran a study that was published in the Lancet Journal, which is a very prominent medical peer-reviewed journal, where he looked at people who, who survived cardiac arrest. And cardiac arrest is when the heart stops, it is known that blood stops flowing to the brain after a certain period of time. This is very extreme physiological conditions. People in cardiac arrest should not be having lucid memories of hovering over their body and sometimes having a life review. I mean, some amazing things that people report in near-death experiences. So what, what Dr. Van Lommel was looking at is when he interviewed people after their resuscitation of, from cardiac arrest, do any of them report a near-death experience? Conventional medicine would say that these people should not be remembering anything because they were dead. And yet he finds in his study that 18%, 1-8% are coming back talking about an experience that's reminiscent of a near-death experience that has been reported throughout the ages. So that on its, I mean, that's a major finding. 18, it should be 0%. That's a lot higher. On, on, that's a lot, I was going to say that's a lot higher of a percentage to say it's coincidence or to try to explain it away. That's, that's almost uh, one-fifth. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible, really incredible. And I think the most compelling cases are the ones that, where the person is hovering out of his or her body during the near-death experience, and they see things in the room or they hear things in the room from a different vantage point. And in some cases, what they see and hear is verified later as being accurate. Now, that is a direct, uh, a direct attack on the notion that these are just hallucinations because a hallucination, by definition, is kind of a delusion. It shouldn't be an accurate report. In 2014... Dr. Sam Parnia ran a similar study where he interviewed people after cardiac arrest. And one of the, one of the survivors in particular had specific experiences of hearing the defibrillator and the specific noises it made and seeing some certain things in the room that could be time-stamped as being during when his brain was off. So you, one can't make the argument that, oh, this person was just making it up before or after cardiac arrest. This is a, a definite timestamp of he heard certain things, and we know when those things happen because we have the medical equipment and we have the medical records. So this is a case of a, it's known as a veridical out-of-body experience, veridical meaning that it's verified as being accurate, and it happened during the time that there was no apparent brain function. That's amazing because then, then that would also support the concept that consciousness is beyond the physical brain. If there's no brain function yet someone's still experiencing something, that points to something else that can't be explained with traditional methodology. Totally, totally. I think it's, it's one of the strongest 
examples because you have a body where you can measure what's happening in the body and you have a consciousness that seems to be acting at that exact same time when the body's not functional. I know we're running low on time right now. I uh, wanted to ask for our audience to learn more about you directly or to obviously the uh, and then upside down thinking they could purchase through Amazon, I'm assuming in other outlets. Uh, do you have a website? Yeah, my website is just my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, and that has some more information on my book, which is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other bookstores. Mark, I think you've been a fascinating guest. I appreciate you coming up with your material. I think it's, I mean, there's more material that we couldn't even cover in our episode that I would, you know, let our audience know. The fascinating stuff that you've documented through your research and the information you're tying together, I think, is so critical that the title fits the importance of the work you're doing right now. Upside down thinking is something that I think really does reflect our understanding and the importance of perhaps looking at all this from a different focal point, a different set of lenses, uh, as we say, different paradigm. And I really am very appreciative to have you on the show. And I'm just happy that you wrote this book because I think it can help inspire a lot of people in the audience who had a similar experience like you had through podcasts a few years ago, that there's a lot out there that we can't even begin to explain, but you definitely made a great starting point here. And I encourage our audience to definitely pick up this book and check it out because it is a fascinating read. Thank you so much. And that's exactly what I'm hoping to do is to kind of make my process, which was drawn out and it took a lot of time and effort to, to find these resources. I wanted to bring them into one place for people to be able to hopefully in an easy read, just get the basis of, of what the science is suggesting. Well, thank you for coming on our show and I wish you continued success. Any future book you have, please keep us in mind. I would love to have you back on. I think that you are definitely taking something that so many people have been afraid to really approach and delving right into it and helping us to gain a greater understanding. So with that, I say it's greatly appreciated that you're a trailblazer in um, trying to tie these concepts together in a coherent fashion so people can gain a better understanding of it. And also perhaps start thinking about these things from not just normal, paranormal, but consciousness and, and how it plays such an important role in our existence. Totally, totally. And thank you for having me on and for giving me an opportunity to chat. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, take care. I want to share with our audience that Mark Gober's book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, is definitely something to check out. When I prepared for this interview and I was looking at this material, it really resonated with me. And it makes me appreciate that we have people like Mark making it part of their passion to explore this topic area, and do so in a way that is written in such a clear and easy to understand fashion. If you have an interest in these topics, an end to upside down thinking will definitely be worthwhile for you to check out. Thank you for supporting our show and for giving us the opportunity of bringing you topics like this one today by Mr. Gober. I uh, encourage you to definitely to reconsider your paradigms, to look at the world from a different set of lenses, and to approach what has been traditionally called the paranormal from a different perspective. What is normal versus what is understood and misunderstood? I look forward to bringing you additional episodes in the future. 
If you have any questions, you can reach me directly at info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. You can also check out our website, www.thesocialpsychicradio.com. And you can check us out on social media. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Back podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric acid.